Welcome to Real Job Talk, the podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not set at the water cooler. Hey, Liz. Hey, Kat. Today, we have such an interesting guest, Bryn Kennedy, a person who truly embodies the phrase, do it all. Right now, Bryn is promoting her new book, Flat, Fluid, and Fast, overseeing her mobility management company, oh, and running for Congress in California's 4th District. Just saying all of that makes me need a nap. Thank you, Bryn, for taking time out of all of your activities to join us on Real Job Talk. Please tell us, how did you get to where you are today? Well, first of all, thank you for having me and thank you for the kind introduction. For those of you who can't see me right now, I am actually in my pajamas still. So uh, (laughs) so your introduction was appropriate. (laughs) I started my uh, career working in infrastructure and real estate investing, and I had the opportunity to work all over the world, work with all kinds of different people and see firsthand how our economy was changing in many different ways. This was 15 years ago, so a little bit of a looking glass into the future. So I saw how people were working across many different locations, uh, how careers were more fluid and nonlinear than ever before, how people were increasingly using more technology in the way that they work. And that just really got me thinking about the future of our economy, the future of what jobs look like, and how we as a society can also support workers as they transition, how they can succeed in this new economy. So about 10 years ago, I started a company called Topia, which is a human resources and talent mobility software company. I founded it while I was in business school after having had the opportunity to see all of these trends firsthand. Uh, over 10 years, we grew the business from an idea at a kitchen table to a business operating globally with hundreds of staff and customers all around the world. And I uh, had the opportunity to also speak a lot about the future of the economy, write a lot about it, and do some policy work in Washington and Sacramento. And what I saw is that the vast majority of organizations, many policymakers, and many individual workers are not necessarily aware or prepared for the trends that are changing our economy. Mm -hmm. So uh, fast forward, I wrote a book, Flat, Fluid, and Fast, about all of these trends and how our workers and companies can succeed in this new economy, how our society can continue to create good middle-class jobs, and uh, decided to put uh, the ideas into practice and run for Congress. That's so exciting. Thank you. Yeah, it's going really, really well. Cool. I guess in seeing mobility and and seeing how we need to be changing, what is something that you see companies doing sort of wrong? Like I think in the hiring process, I don't know that I see a lot of companies taking mobility into account. And so what is something that you see that is kind of a low-hanging fruit thing that companies can be doing in order to encourage their themselves being ready for a more mobile workforce? Well, I think that there's, there's two really important trends, um, both of which we go into in great detail in the book, both thematically and tactically. So one is that companies should increase and individual employees should increase 
increasingly think about themselves as a set of skills instead of as a job title. You know, we have lived in this world for many, many, many years where people joined a company. There was an expectation of a linear career path. You know, you started as a junior product manager, became a senior, became a manager, et cetera, and in many ways had the same boss and worked in the same department and became very defined by your resume and your job mm-hmm. titles. Today, I think we live in and are increasingly living in much more of a world of skills. So an individual employee is effectively a portfolio of different skills. So you might be a product manager, but you also might be very analytical, or you might be a great communicator, or you might be deeply artistic and creative. Um, We all have a lot of different facets of our experience. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is for individuals to really think about developing a portfolio of skills and then being able to use them across different jobs throughout a career. Mm -hmm. And for company managers and HR leaders to increasingly think that their individual employees are diverse and they can do many things within a company. And that helps with both retention and engagement. The other side of this is that individuals today will work across many, many different jobs and companies and types of employment. I like to say that they will have many more jobs than their parents even had titles. Mm -hmm. Through parts of their career, they may be working full-time, they may be working part-time and studying, they may be taking a career break and doing some volunteer activity, they may be freelancing for a little bit. That's kind of the standard in a career today with the white-collar workforce. And so I really encourage... Uh, managers and businesses and policymakers to think about every kind of worker as one workforce. The definition of employment has to be much broader and the benefits that we provide to employees as a society need to be rethought so that we can support workers through all different stages of their career, regardless of whether that's a full-time traditional employment relationship or that's more of a hybrid or freelance relationship. I think that's really important because, you know, right now we see, you know, the full suite of benefits being offered to full-time employees, but that, you know, so-called gig economy, right? That has been growing and growing and growing. And it would be really nice to see more benefits provided to people who are in contract roles, who are having big impacts in their roles and the companies that they're serving. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's important to recognize that people and companies want to work in different ways. You know, there is a huge amount of opportunity for companies to abuse some of these trends and that should not be ignored in this conversation, um, particularly in more blue collar jobs. Um, But the reality is that there is also the other side where workers, particularly in white collar jobs, increasingly want flexibility in their Mm -hmm. careers and go between full-time employment and freelance work. Now, we have come from a place in our society where for many, many years, the relationship between a company and an employee has been very patriarchal. And there's been this expectation that the company provides benefits, the company provides healthcare, the company provides retirement, the company provides, you know, in many cases, even like a gym membership or these types of things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in the book, I talk about the contrast to my grandfather, who in many ways traded his own fulfillment for the stability of the family's benefits and the pension and all of those kinds of things. And that's absolutely a choice. Some people will continue to do that. But we need to recognize as a society that when we have more flexible work and we have more entrepreneurial activity and we have people who may be working in many jobs at the same time, 
that we have an obligation, both economically and morally, as policy leaders to provide a benefit structure that gives them an option to buy into things like affordable health care coverage, like a pension that allows them to collectively bargain or unionize, even if they might not be in a traditional employment relationship. Those are hard, hard questions that really deeply touch our government. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to run, because I think they're very important questions um, for Congress to address as our economy does continue to change. And we need to ensure that people don't fall through the cracks amid that change. So important, especially, you know, both Liz and I are self-employed and having access to that kind of structure would really, would certainly make a difference for me. The, Mm -hmm. you know, the amount of money that we spend on healthcare, for instance, is crazy. Yeah. I mean, it is, like I say, it's an economic and a moral imperative. I think it's Mm -hmm. very easy to articulate a lot of these conversations as, you know, values driven or as the right thing to do. But the reality is that it also curtails significant economic opportunity, job creation, mm-hmm. and people starting new small businesses, which are the backbones of many of our communities. Uh, in, if there is this bottleneck around mm-hmm. basic benefits and sort of survival. Yeah your family and your livelihood. And I think, you know, our government leaders, and I hope to be one of them, have an obligation to understand where the economy is going and make sure that our workers are supported, that people can fulfill both their ambition and uh, stay in their communities, and that we're doing that well as a country. But I love what you said. I think that you hit on a point around ambition and around entrepreneurial goals. And it's like, if my family didn't have healthcare through my husband's job. There is no way I'd be working for myself and building my own business right now because the cost of a family of four is just astronomical. And, you know, it's that stability. But if we weren't relying on companies for our stability, then maybe there would be more entrepreneurial ventures in our country. And you never know what could happen with that. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my family was kind of similar growing up, which is, um, I mean, it was a while ago, but it, it has informed my view. My my dad was a community college teacher, first in his family to go to college, and he had really good benefits as a from his union contract and such as a community college teacher. Mm-hmm. My mom, you know, maybe similar to how you just articulated it, was is a small business owner. She owns a retail store in a small town. She's had it for 47 years, 71, still working six days a week. She's incredibly impressive. But she always relied on my dad for her health care. And after they got divorced when I was younger, my mom got cancer. And I remember so vividly how terrifying and expensive it was for her to navigate this system without my dad's benefits. And, you know, my mother has created jobs. She's been a really important part of a small town community where she lives. And those small and growing businesses are the backbones of so much of our economic activity and so many of our communities and our families throughout the country. In fact, small new businesses have created 62% of jobs since 2008. So if you really step back and think about that, we're saying, okay, we need to fundamentally rethink the foundation that enables work in America and then enables economic opportunity and communities. So important. I support that work that you're doing, and I, I really hope your campaign goes well. Thank you. Thank you. So in your book, you talk about employee engagement through mobility. Mm -hmm. 
But we see a lot of companies that we work with struggling with enabling remote employees. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the tips that you have to building a cohesive, aligned company culture with a remote workplace? That's a great question. And every time I speak, uh, it comes up because it is a really challenging thing to do. Um, you know, uh, first of all, it's much easier if you do all one way or all the other way. So, you know, easier to have everyone in the office and keep people engaged, or it's easier to have all or the majority of people working remotely or flexibly and sharing that experience um, and building the systems and the foundations around Mm -hmm. that. Um, The reality is there are some very successful companies that have started as remote only. We profile some of them in the book and some of their best practices. But for the majority of companies, it is a hybrid situation or it is a transition from full-time office work to enabling some remote work. So I think the first thing is that it takes intention from the top. It takes a leader or a manager really saying, we are going to build this culture. We support it. We support the flexibility and making a commitment to that. That commitment has to come in the form of cultural norms. So things like how do you do a video? How do you do a conference call or a meeting when five people are working virtually and 10 people are in a conference room, you know, that can feel very isolating. Mm -hmm. Um, So it starts setting the norms for how people communicate in meetings, off meetings. Is it Slack? Is it documenting more things? Is it email so that things don't get missed, you know, in the metaphorical water cooler conversation Mm -hmm. by the remote folks? Implementing the structures and systems to make that possible. There's a technology basis to this, which is critical, and then ensuring that people adopt them. I do map out in the book, there's a couple different chapters that address this very tactically. One is chapter three, which talks about the evolution of the office and Mm -hmm. sort of how you go from a full-time office environment to an office environment that is occasional. So when people come in and it sparks creativity and sparks joy and sparks collaboration, and then in, in a latter chapter, I talk about systems and operations where I lay out really tactically what should those cultural norms look like? What should those systems look like? What should benefits look like mm-hmm. if you have more of a remote workforce? Great. So there's a lot of information in the book for people who are curious about mm-hmm. that. For sure. There is. And there's also a lot of case studies across that spectrum. So companies like Automatic, which owns WordPress, uh, which is a fully remote work culture, work from everywhere, I call it. You know, you can mm-hmm. work anywhere on the planet mm-hmm. if you want and work there. Two companies like Skype, which had uh, a large amount of flexibility based into the workforce to many others. So there's some really good anecdotes too. And I think that I was just having this conversation with someone yesterday about a remote office that was a startup and they spent a ton of time at the beginning setting their norms and rules and even rules around email, like putting something in brackets that said info only. So meaning you didn't have to write back, but to set their norms for mobility. So this is what mobile for us looks like, and this is what we use. And I think that's really helpful when you have a remote only office or even a hybrid office. Um, yeah, it's I think that helps. And I mean, that was one of my big takeaways from studying mm-hmm. the remote only companies. And there's yeah. a lot of good anecdotes from Automatic in the book, but mm-hmm. you know, documenting it, it, a lot of it really comes down to communication because yes. things spiral really negatively if the people who are working more remotely or flexibility feel left out. Mm-hmm. You know, those 
conference calls where the 10 people in the conference room start talking to each other and ignore the people on the line. You know, there is a school of thought that if you have any room, anyone not in the room, everyone should not be in the room so mm. that it, it's equal, which I think is a very effective way to do it. You know, even if people are literally sitting at their desk on the conference call instead mm-hmm. of in the conference room, everyone's sort of on par. There is also a school of thought that when you have remote employees, you should avoid having employees have sporadic conversations, you know, at the water cooler or the lunch table. They're always going to have it to some extent, but if you do have it, you should document it on Slack or on whatever internal communication system it is so that, you know, maybe the third person on the team who's not there doesn't miss out on that. And those are mostly behavioral and communication norm changes. Very inclusive, very different than how things have been done in the past, right? Most people wouldn't have thought of, oh, maybe I should document this on Slack, right? This conversation that we had. The interesting thing too is it, I think in many ways, puts a greater emphasis on written communication. Mm-hmm. For my whole career, I've worked on in global teams for the most part, and that's kind of a similar experience. And you know, I grew up almost fully working on email. Like many people copied on every email on Messenger, et cetera. I mean, I rarely in the 15 years of work used the phone because that's point to point in many ways. But you know, that can be a very significant behavioral change for people. I I have a hard time personally if you know you're not copied on everything, don't know what's going on, can't see. And I think that probably comes from me having worked at, grown up in, and run companies that had pretty distributed teams Mm -hmm. um, in many cases. So if I'm starting a company and I want it to be mobile-friendly, remote-friendly, but also have an office for the people who really like going into the office and don't want to work at home for whatever reason... How do you choose like what role falls into what category? And I liked your idea in the book about, you know, there being kind of the hub office, but then mm-hmm. people can kind of come and go. But how do you keep everybody happy while also running a business and making sure you don't have too much office space or too little office space and everything in between? So I don't necessarily advocate that some roles need to be in the office mm-hmm. or some not. I think it's more contingent on what's going on in the business. Mm-hmm. So here's what I mean by that. I think about it, and we talk about this in the book, like a rubber band. So there are absolutely times in companies where everyone needs to be in the office. I mean, that is hands mm-hmm. down unequivocal. Just like there are absolutely times in your family where you need right. everyone sitting around a dinner table to discuss yeah. something or make mm-hmm. Vision, right? Um, And so it's up to the leadership of the company to establish when those times are. There's structural times like annual planning or goal setting or annual reviews or management meetings that can happen, you know, monthly, quarterly, whatever, annually. Um, And then there is times where something is happening strategically or operationally in the business like an acquisition or a strategic rollout or a challenge in the business where you kind of need to like get everyone together to huddle and um, be on the same page and be aligned. Um, But once that alignment happens and everyone knows what their role is, you know, you almost can let the rubber band go, let people go execute. Because honestly, in many ways, it is more efficient to execute 
if you have your head down at home, you roll out of your bed, you work 12 hours, you don't talk to anyone, you don't do a commute, you you know, all that Mm -hmm. stuff. So that's how I think about it. And that's up to the leadership of the company to to set that tone. You know, some of those time periods, candidly, um, could be years. You know, if you're starting an early stage business and no one really knows what their job is and you're trying to create a product, you know, you might as a leader want everyone in the office until they have defined roles and clear goals and clear expectations. Some of those time periods might be days. Like we need to do an announcement. We need everyone to get on board. Da, 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 da. It really just depends on the company, but the leadership and the manager, this can be, by the way, a team or a company, the leadership and the manager needs to get into this mindset so that they can clearly set expectations for folks. Mm -hmm. Do you have any other tricks that you can share with our listeners who, you know, maybe starting to work remotely about what they can do to be, you know, most effective? Yeah. So I think the first things are to um, set up a communication system, mm-hmm. both a video conferencing system and a uh, messaging system. Mm-hmm. This is getting kind of pretty tactical, but a lot of people use Slack or you know Blue Jeans or Zoom or something mm-hmm. like that. I think it's very, very important that people see each other when they're talking or have, have an opportunity to do that. You know, we used to say at Topia and our chief product officer who who still runs our product says this all the time, you can't build relationships and trust virtually, but you can maintain it. So mm-hmm. it's important that people meet like once and then have an experience together. And then it's important that they see each other mm-hmm. continually through video conferences. So that's kind of one real tactical thing is get your video conferencing system, make it a first use thing. So default to video conferencing if you're interacting with someone as opposed to the phone or an email or a text mm-hmm. message so that you can continue to maintain that relationship. And then the second is a messaging system, which goes back to what we were talking er about earlier of making sure that many people are included in conversations and Mm -hmm. can see through the written communication what is going on. Again, I like Slack. That was really successful for us at Topia. Great. Thank you. What about boundaries? Like, So I love being mobile, but that's also because I'm, I'm constantly juggling work and home like we all are. Um, but what about boundaries around work time and not work time? <laughs> that's a really, really good question. And I think um, in many ways, it, depending on how you look at work, it can be an upside or a downside of the remote work culture. I mean, the upside is that you can work in a much more flexible way, which I think it is very important for families, for mm-hmm. lifestyle, for other interests, and I think is particularly embraced by women or single parents or people who want to spend more time with their family or in some kind of other activity. And that's you know critical to having a balanced workforce with both spouses able to work successfully and take care of kids. The downside, obviously, is that it's almost constant. So when you're working a couple hours on, a couple hours off or whatever it is, the net of which you're working ends up being many, many, many more hours in your day. And that can feel really suffocating to some people. And I think that that's why you see such a um, growth of the wellness space and a growth of meditation and a growth of people having opportunities to have sort of quiet time amid this frenzied work environment that we're operating in today. Um, so 
I think the boundaries are up to the person. You know, I personally prefer to work like 15 hours a day and have breaks and run in the middle of the day and do those kinds of things. But it really is very person dependent. I've had people on my team that say, I'm going to work this hour to this hour and then I'm going to be off. What I personally advocate is using a calendar and blocking the personal mm-hmm. time and making it very proactive. You know, some people are uncomfortable with that. They're like, I don't want all my personal stuff on the calendar. I'm like, just say personal then. Just but, write block. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, I do that. Like I go for a run from like 2 to 3 p.m. or whatever it is. And then, you know, dinner or whatever it is. And I think that that's important so that you can set your own boundaries because we also, you know, as a society shouldn't be dictating eight to five is a work day and then you go Mm -hmm. home and you don't respond. I mean, like that also doesn't work for some people, specifically mothers or people that need to pick up a child from school or whatever it is, or have a doctor's appointment. Mm -hmm. So it's really up to the manager and the individual employees setting that um, procedure and making sure that they have their own mind space and are, are, are healthy mentally through the current work expectations. I think technology's made it harder because nobody has the excuse of like, oh, I didn't have a chance to see that on my computer before I left work for the day. Like we all have access to all our information all the time. And so it's now, instead of it being the choice of, you know, when our parents were going to work, they left the office and the work was at the office. Now we have it with us and it's our choice whether to engage or not. And I think mobility even adds to that because if I do block three to five to drive my kids everywhere, then the expectation is like, you're going to get to that because you have it and you're going to make time for that. And so I think that boundaries as a mobile person are really critical um, and, and communicating that and top down, bottom up communicating that like the CEO has to both say it and live it also. Or you do have a bunch of people that are burnt out. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's also important that we talk about it and talk about it in our education system more as as, um, people are deciding what careers might be best for them. I mean, it's very easy to talk about this as everyone. It's very easy to apply kind of a a white collar for your college friends to a lot of these conversations. But the reality is that you know we also need a much greater embrace of trades education and 100%. path to the middle class that is not only through a four-year college and a white-collar role and being connected to technology all Absolutely. the time. And we've done, from my perspective, not a great job as a country in the last 20 years really embracing the trades and we have huge shortages and we have you know wage issues. And so even though my book and a lot of my experience is in this particular very technology-driven 24-7 sort of globally connected white-collar jobs Mm -hmm. world that is changing in that way, I do talk about policies in the final chapter, and you'll see that there's a, a note about much greater apprenticeship investments in the trades, and that's a big part of my campaign because people need to be able to make that choice. If you are working in the building trades, for example, this is not the situation. You know, Mm -hmm. you're working in a job that does end, that does start early, that does require a trade. But if you are working in a fast-growing white-collar creative economy company or a small business in many ways, you then are in many ways today living more in that world. So I think, you know, we have an obligation to make sure that in our community colleges, in our high schools, in our career education, in our societal dialogue, we're talking about 
the optionality and the changes in both of these areas. For sure. Super important because I agree with you. It's been neglected and we're, Mm -hmm. you know, as a society kind of behind because of that, because the focus hasn't been there. So I could talk about this for hours. (laughs) It's rather ironic that we have such a societal conversation around um, college debt and around a shortage of workers and a shortage of uh, in the trades and a shortage of housing and all of these types of things. And yet we've almost done away with the apprenticeship track in Mm -hmm. trades. And as a society, we've stopped celebrating it as a great Mm -hmm. path to the middle class. And we've sort of pushed everyone in one direction. And we need to do both at the same time, recognize one side is changing, support our employees in that, educate what that life looks like to your point of constant connectivity and then educate what the alternative is through apprenticeships and the trades. I love that. And I think like, I think apprenticeships are so important in trades and other things, but I think it's also important in the office and talk a little bit about career paths. And I know when I was a junior young buck, I learned a lot from sitting near people like Kat and other people that had more experience than me. And I do feel like in the mobile world, we lose some of that learning by cubicle closeness. Um, and, and to, on the trade track, the apprenticeships and, and if everyone's in it for themselves, are they taking people under their wing and growing the next generation? And so talk to that in terms of mobility and learning and growth and early career track. Yeah, you know, the interesting thing about mobility, the, this kind of talent mobility revolution and this new way of the working in our current economy and the white collar workforce is that it has really changed the concept of a manager mm-hmm. and the concept of a mentor. And there's the middle section in my book talks all about career paths and the changing nature of a manager and the changing nature of performance reviews. And I think it's probably really as an individual reader, the heart of thinking about your future career and career development. Um, But one thing is that if you're working across many different jobs, as I call them, parts of the organization, almost tours of duty, completing a project, you're gaining a lot of skills in that skills portfolio as a worker that can then be used across subsequent jobs, which is very exciting for people. But it also means that you're working with many different managers or project leaders throughout your career. So you, while you may be developing a broader set of relationships, they may not be as deep. So what I advise the best practice is, is that the project leader or the person that's responsible for completing the job that you're working on should be the person to give the performance review of how you did on that job. Mm-hmm. But it's absolutely essential that in the company, you're still assigned to a manager. Mm-hmm. And that manager takes on more of a mentor role, mm-hmm. consolidating feedback across your projects, talking about de- development, talking about professional skills, synthesizing, being someone you can rely on because you're not directly working for that person every day anymore throughout like a 10-year career at that company. So that's just like a little bit of a different way to think about it. But I thought about this a lot and I looked at this a lot and thought like, do people need that connection, that consistent mentoring, managerial connection, or 
Or have we moved fully to a world where they're working across multiple jobs and happy kind of hopping between managers? Mm -hmm. And what I found in studying this is that people do need that. People do still really want one person that supports them, is their champion, advocates for them, mentors them within the company. So it's important that that structure is still there. I couldn't agree with you more on that. Having having an internal mentor slash champion is so important for multiple reasons, right? Not only growth, but having someone there that you've got that strong relationship with can make all the difference in the world when you're navigating through some challenging stuff. And you know, that that happens to all of us. Exactly. Yeah. We talk a lot about having a board of advisors and I think board is your board of advisors need to be inside your company as well as outside. And so that different people can have different roles, but to have that person inside your company is a critical piece of the board. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and then to have the diversity, right? The diversity mm-hmm. of thought on people who are actually, you can trust and who actually advise you on your career. But mm-hmm. definitely having someone inside is crucial. Mm-hmm. So how about we switch gears here and talk about Congress? So we know that you've worked with lawmakers on mobility issues and regulations facing companies. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to run for office? Let's talk about that. So when I was running Topia, I had the opportunity, as you alluded to, to meet with lawmakers and talk about uh, innovation and our economy. And I was really taken aback by the lack of business acumen in our government. Mm. Uh, There's very few people, in fact, only about 20% in Congress that have a business background. And there's only about 6% that have any experience with software technology. And as I started really thinking about this, I thought, gosh, so many of our opportunities and our challenges as a society stem from understanding where the economy is going, understanding how to solve problems, how to take many different perspectives into consideration, appreciate them, have a respectful, intelligent debate about different views and progress the benefit for communities in the way that you progress a benefit for customers or employees. And I just thought we've so radically gotten away from that. We've gotten to this world of toxic finger pointing and partisanship and donors and political parties and all these things above solving real complex, hairy problems for people's lives, for their jobs, for their education, for their families, for their safety. And I staunchly believe that the only way we get back to that world is with a new generation of people in government that have a breadth of experience and are open to welcoming different perspectives and moving to what I call a post-partisan world. New generation isn't about age. It's about a different, it's about perspective. And I really wanted to be a part of that for our community because currently for many and for many years, we've been represented by someone who is the embodiment of that partisan football and toxic finger pointing. And you're in the fourth district of California, correct? Which is near Sacramento. Is that correct? I am, yeah. So it's a very large district. Um, I live in Roseville, which is a a suburb of Sacramento. So we have a suburban Sacramento part. We have the Lake Tahoe area and basically. And then we have the area around Yosemite and the Sierra. That is big. That is really big. Yeah, a lot of geographically big. It's incredibly Mm -hmm. special. Uh, We have so many opportunities here. 
in the different parts of our area to be leaders in job creation in the green economy and small businesses and attracting more companies to the greater Sacramento area. And we have great public education and just a really wonderful enterprising community. Awesome. So it sounds like your goals as a lawmaker are more around bringing business to Washington versus like mobility. But how how do you see tying in your HR mobility career into your hopeful, hopefully uh, political career? Well, you know, the underlying concept of mobility is how do you bring more jobs to more people? Mm-hmm. And that comes in many different forms, but fundamentally it's about creating good jobs for working families, people who work hard and middle-class jobs. And mobility actually unlocks the opportunity for more jobs to be done outside of a major area, like Mm -hmm. maybe San Francisco is the the corollary. And we have struggled (laughs) as a country, and certainly in California, we've struggled with having champions of rural and suburban California and creating jobs, be they remote, be they new and small businesses, be they with flexible commuting relationships Mm -hmm. between the city and the, the rural area. We've struggled with that. And we've created a very uneven economic picture and opportunity picture based on where you're born or where you live in this situation where kids feel like they need to graduate and go into a city instead of stay in their community. So that's something I'm really, really passionate about and see a huge opportunity for our community. Now, we need the foundation to do that. We need continued investment and funding for public education, for infrastructure, for broadband, which is an issue in our area, if you can believe that, and for public safety. Um, So that's kind of the bridge, but it really does all go together and is fundamentally about good jobs with good pay and opportunities for people to live and work in our community and live the American dream. Okay, so big question. Are you going to move to D.C. if you get elected, or will you be doing a bunch of commuting? Uh, well, like most members of Congress, I'll be living in both places, and like many people in the um, mobile workforce, living in both places. So D.C. when we're in session, and back here in Roseville and across our community, talking to constituents when we are not. It's actually an interesting question because it's one thing that I feel really strongly about versus uh, the current incumbent who hasn't done a town hall with constituents in, I kid you not, more than 850 days. Oh, my. doesn't talk to anyone that he represents. So one of the things that I talk to our community about all the time is just being present, you know, communicating. It's like if you ran a company and you just woke up one day and you're like, gosh, my employees, they're really annoying. They ask really hard questions. <laughs> they sometimes don't agree with my decisions. So I'm just going to stay in my office with the door shut every day and never talk to anyone. I mean, that's literally like how he's been representing. So I'm very excited to change that. And I always tell people, you know, you might not agree with everything that I vote on, but you're definitely going to understand the logic and be able to hear from me about it and ask questions. So I'll be in both. Great. Is it a goal of yours to help lawmakers move some of the processes to the digital age? Absolutely. One of the priorities for our campaign is um, what I call better government. And that is about auditing our federal agencies, modernizing the systems that the government runs on, really just making sure that tax dollars are used for services 
and investments in communities instead of in bureaucracy and outdated technology and big black holes that mm-hmm. you know, everyone kind of rolls their eyes at and loses faith in government. Um, you know, this might take a little while to transition, but we should have the best systems running our government, the most efficient agencies, and the maximum amount of your tax dollars going into services, education, infrastructure, job creation, not into outdated websites. Excellent. Awesome. Well, we think you're fascinating and we could talk with you all day, uh, but we all have meetings coming up. So we're going to and people have other things to do than listen to all of us all day. So I want to thank you on behalf of Kat and me for joining us. Uh, please plug yourself. Where can people reach you and learn more about you and give the info for your book and let people spend lots of time with you in other places? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. That's great discussion. Um, thank you to all the listeners. So you can buy my book, Flat, Fluid, and Fast on Amazon today. And you can check out more about it on my website, flatfluidfast.com. You can learn more about the campaign at brinforcongress.com. That's B-R-Y-N-N-E-F-O-R congress.com. Excellent. Thank you so much, Bren. We enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. This is Real Job Talk, a podcast about jobs, careers, and what's not said at the water cooler. Our website with all Real Job Talk related information is realjobtalk.com. We'd love to hear from you. Please send us your questions, topics you'd like to talk about, and Real Job Talk stories. And you may find them featured on a future episode. Use the website or email us at realjobtalk at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at realjobtalk. And on Instagram and Facebook at Real Job Talk Show. My name is Kat Troyer. You can find me on Twitter at Daily Cat, And on LinkedIn, you can find me via Kathleen Nelson Troyer. And I'm Liz Bronson. On Twitter, I'm at Liz Beaks and Salt. And on LinkedIn, I'm Liz Bronson. Real Job Talk is a tech reckoning production. Our producer is John Mark Troyer. Our graphic artists are Lexi and Zachary Bronson. And we're here by the water cooler waiting to talk with you. <laughs>